I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Hey guys, welcome to the Emptiness Lab. In this episode, me and Tom chat with Dr. Andrew Gallimore. He's the author of Alien Information Theory, Psychedelic Drug Technologies in the Cosmic Game, and also the creator of the Psychedelic Neuroscience Master Course, which is totally free online, so you guys should check that out. I know will be. Um, Dr. Andrew, is, he's fascinating. He's articulate, intelligent, and I feel like we could listen to him riff for days on just various topics. Um, So we're going to hear how he views DMT as a technology to access alien worlds and other intelligences. Hold on to your butts, prepare yourselves, get ready for this one, and enjoy. And then I think the the rest of the questions I have are just... The extreme. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was just what taking notes. And I, was like, I was going all Terrence McKenna and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> oh, here he is now. Here he is now. Hey, Dr. Andrew. Hi, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Perfect. Wonderful. Fabulous. <laughs> nice How's to meet you. Doing? Thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. I'm I'm really excited for this. Good. I hope. It's I think we've been binging your videos for the past three weeks. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Splendid. Well, I hope you learned a lot. Yeah, it was, it was fascinating. Really good stuff. And you live in uh, Okinawa, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So the. Deep south of Japan, I guess you would call it. I was just in Okinawa for the first time last year. Oh, really? Oh, nice. The food was amazing. Like mm. the broth and everything was the best broth I've ever had. Yeah, 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 yeah. Soba. Okinawa soba is um, oh, the kind of the famous dish they have down here. I'm not a big fan, to be honest, but um, I know a lot of people like it. I find it just been a bit kind of just salty and... I don't know. I don't, I don't get much out of it. I love it. <laughs> what, what, how, how do you like living in Japan? Did, what drew you out there? Was it just work or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was um, basically a computational neuroscience position opened up weirdly in Okinawa and at the new institute here. Well, the relative new institute, it's about 10, 12 years old now. Um, but um, yeah, so basically I, I had the opportunity, I've always wanted to live in Japan since I was a teenager for some reason. And this was kind of the opportunity that arose. And so I thought, well, YOLO and all that. <laughs> and so, so here I am basically. Yeah, I've been here 
five years almost to the day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, life's a little slower in that region. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Okinawa it's a time. Beautiful place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I won't be here for, forever. I think I'll probably go to the mainland next year. Okay. Mm. Increase the stress likely. a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, your DMT research, Andrew, is that, that's, a, that's a side gig, is it? Well, it depends upon your definition of side gig. I mean, my, day, my paid kind of nine to five kind of stuff is computational neurobiology, uh, which has nothing to do directly with DMT. Um, I'm interested in synaptic connections in the brain and, and, and how they are, how they function, how they change, how they're regulated, that kind of thing. Uh, so I do computational modeling of, of that. Um, and then the DMT stuff is really, I would call it my main gig, but that's because that's my main interest. That's my main drive, but it's, it's quite, um, tricky to um to spend all of your time working on dmt because you know one has to eat and that kind of thing apparently <laughs> yeah but it sounds like the work you're doing really informs uh maybe what the dmt experience is uh yeah yeah i mean for me i've always felt that it's important i mean the problem with with psychedelics um, a little bit is, is that when you get into a discussion with people on psychedelics, they often, they will often go into this kind of, you often find yourself going down the, the alley of kind of plant spirits and um, astral plane and all this kind of stuff, which is all fine and dandy if people like to think like that and that's their way of their worldview. But, but for me, I thought if we're really going to try to get a handle on what, what DMT is and what it's doing, we need to have at least one foot firmly in in the neuroscientific realm and, and at least have a solid neuroscientific underpinning for for trying to understand it otherwise you know anything goes you know we can just say anything uh and you could you could go to alistair crowley and 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 look at some of his his thinking or or, or whoever it doesn't matter you, know, you could draw from anywhere to, to or the alchemists um, and you can draw from anywhere and try and get a handle on DMT and you might be able to develop a kind of cogent, relatively coherent picture, but it wouldn't really explain much um, on a more, in a more general way, which is what I, I try to do. So I, I do get kind of, I'm criticized for being very speculative uh, and I'm, that's perfectly fine. I'm happy to be criticized for that. Uh, but what I always do is have a, a firm um, neuroscientific underpinning to everything I do. So, so yeah, so my, my, my work in neuroscience, um, which has been really for the last seven or eight years, I've been working in, in computational neurobiology, but before that I was more of a biochemist, stroke chemist, stroke pharmacologist. Um, so, so all of that prior academic work certainly informs everything that I think about uh, at the moment, but I'm reaching the point now where I think I'm ready to kind of leave the academic world behind and, and kind of branch out entirely on my own. I've kind of milked it, I think, for all it's worth. Um, yeah. I think that was one of the things that drew me to work is kind of that, you know, exploring it without the dogma and the new age baggage in spirituality, mm -hmm. which, which is all good. 
mm-hmm. but I like the way you view it as a technology. And it reminds me of kind of McKenna. Uh, he might say it's the alien, but at least it's something tangible that's not coming from our, you know, subjective culture. Yeah, precisely. I've always, uh, obviously Terence McKenna has always been and continues to be a huge inspiration because ideas would fly off him like, like sparks from a flint rolling down a round, down a mountain, you know, it's like ideas all the time. Many of them he would never follow up. Um, but you would, you would just listen to a couple of hours of a Terence McKenna talk and, and you, all these interesting ideas would fly off him. And, uh, so he's, he's, he's always been a great source of inspiration for me. And, and yeah, I am, I'm drawn to the idea of alien technology. It just, it just seems like, you know, there's the, the certainly intelligence. Well, I would say it's a pretty sure bet that there's, there's alien intelligence elsewhere, not only in this universe, uh, but most likely outside as well. And, and that really fascinates me because, of course, we, we have this, it's natural for us to be very, very human centric. And that can only take you so far. You have to really think quite deeply really about what you mean by aliens, what you mean by intelligence, what you mean by life to really, to really kind of appreciate or begin to appreciate the kind of intelligence that might be extant, that might exist somewhere else in this universe. I mean, first of all, that's the first thing, right? You know, we, we live, we are a, a relatively young technological species. You could think of our technological age as being maybe a hundred years, you know, like the digital information age, right? It's probably only um, this kind of age that we're living in now, more generally for organisms, is probably a quite a narrow window. Pretty soon after reaching, well, certain astrobiologists have suggested that pretty soon after a species reaches the, the age we are, the technological age, it's not long before they've left the planet entirely. Um, so, you know, you spend all, all these thousands, tens of thousands of years kind of grinding away, going through industrial revolution, you know, learning to build fire and all of this kind of stuff. And then you finally reach this very narrow window, this very narrow length of time where you become digital, you become computational, uh, you become highly technological, then you're off and, and you leave the planet or you even leave the material world in the normal way. So you become essentially a form of um, artificial intelligence, right? Um, that seems to be most likely. We seem to have an eye in that direction, right? It, people have been talking about that probably for decades now. You know, what, what is it possible for us to upload our brains to a computer, that kind of thing. And it's certainly the fact that we're seeing it as a possibility means that advanced intelligences out there in the universe uh, are most likely, the majority of them are most likely to have progressed or many of them will have progressed beyond that stage. Uh, and so we live probably in a largely post-biological universe. And what that means is, is that any intelligence that we're that we can communicate with is most likely to be post biological because any intelligence that is less advanced than us well they've got no chance right they only have to be a hundred or so years um less advanced than us and they have no means of communication because 
think about where we were. Uh, we, you know, we had no means of communicating with aliens in the stars. Uh, another couple of hundred years more advanced than us, and that they're, they're post-biological. Um, so the chances of us meeting, you know, the, a species that's in with this this very narrow biological realm is actually probably relatively quite small. Small, and the majority of intelligence is probably post-biological. Now, that applies to this universe, but let's now think about well, you know, is do we live in a in a universe that? Uh, the only universe and, and and again most modern reasonable modern theoretical physicists or, or other kind of cosmological theoreticians would say probably not we are probably um one universe amongst who knows how many and the idea of what kind of intelligence might exist if we see intelligence as being this kind of uh, a very natural product of organizational complexity and, and the, the complexification of a system. You know, our universe complexified over billions of years and we seem to sit at the pinnacle or close to that, you know, living, conscious, intelligent, thinking organisms. Um, now, if you apply that universal principle perhaps to other universes, then you, one can't even imagine um, the type of intelligences that might be existent within those places nor can we imagine necessarily how communication between those universes might be achieved. Uh, you know, we sit here thinking we know a lot, uh, and we do know a lot, but we're also extremely limited. We have to be very, very careful. This is why when people say, you know, DMT, there's no way it's impossible for us to be communicating with intelligences from somewhere else, from another reality. You know, whether it's somewhere else in this universe, probably unlikely. Uh, or it's some orthogonal reality, some other place. Um, people often say, well, there's no mechanism for it. You know, we, we can't do it. You know, we understand this. You need an Einstein-Rosen bridge. And they will talk um, in this kind of theoretical physicist kind of spiel about why it is and isn't possible. But for me, it, that's, it's, it's a moot point. It's like a when I was a... Um, a teenager used to, or I guess some people still do now, um, like computer games, right? If you're playing a video game and you might spend hours arguing with your friend whether or not this character can jump over this gap. Remember those platform games? They still have those now? Yeah. And you can, you know, you have to jump. You think, is it possible to jump in one go? And you might argue uh, for hours about whether it's possible and how much of a run up you need and all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, there's probably one or two numbers in the code that will determine whether or not this figure, this creature, this character can actually make that jump. Uh, uh, and so within the physics of the game, so to speak, it might be impossible for, uh, for, for it to be achieved. However, of course, from the outside perspective, from the perspective of, of a programmer, um, it would be a simple change of a couple of numbers and then mm. it would be able to achieve it. You know what I mean? So, so it's easy to argue from within our universe. And it's obvious why they do that, because they can't really make arguments about other universes that they have no access to. Uh, but you have to be very careful about saying it's impossible for um, any kind of intelligence to somehow have developed a way uh, for communication between our what appear to be ostensibly entirely separate universes. So, so in other words, when you meet a DMT entity, uh, he could be exactly who he says he is. Sorry, I rambled a bit there, but yeah.
Well, that so, Doctor Andrew, that made me think about a uh, professor Donald Hoffman out of uh, UC Irvine who. Yeah, it says you know if we were to see reality as it is, we wouldn't be able to survive because mm-hmm. evolution selects for fitness and not necessarily truth or right. some objective reality. So, you know, if we if we are just this world as a user interface, and what we see are the desktops that we could get through and survive, uh, would you think DMT is um, is it uh, more real? Is it just a different reality? Can we say hallucination, reality? I mean, are there levels to that? Well, so, so yeah, Ho- I'm a big fan of Hoffman. I was reading Hoffman um, many years ago. Um, it is, he, he, he published a couple of exploratory papers where before he became very well known for this idea, this interface model of perception, as he calls it, he had written a few uh, papers in which he made the argument, as you've just done, that that your brain is not, the brain has no yardstick for measuring truth as such. And it's not interested in truth, um, whatever that might mean. Um, you, you, you could argue, is that, is that blue, that little picture on the wall behind me? I mean, it, it's impossible to, to have any kind of objective yardstick about what blue means, other than it's a quality. Uh, it's a quality that, of the world that we perceive that, 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 that appears to be constructed in some way by your brain. So your brain is always uh, interested in the, the most adaptive perception. What is the most um, adaptive model of reality? So we always live in a, our phenomenal world, our subjective world is this model. It's a model that's constructed by your brain, which Donald Hoffman calls this interface, which you she also uses the metaphor of the desktop on a computer. When you, you drag a file to the, the trash can, everybody knows there's not really a trash can there. It's simply a way for you to, to kind of see what you're doing, uh, which underneath, of course, you've got a shuffling around of, uh, of ones and zeros, basically, which, is, which affects the, de- the, the deletion of the file. And it wouldn't be useful for you to see that because it would be very, very confusing. And, and so the brain's job, the brain's role is to organize these patterns of information that it's receiving from the world. Very, very noisy patterns of information from all the different senses. Um, and then to organize them uh, in a hierarchical manner to form this global model of reality that works, that is functional, that allows you to detect uh, predators, that, you know, that allows you to distinguish between something you should run away from or something you should run towards, you know, some kind of food source or something like that in, in, a, you know, in, in an evolutionary sense. Um, so, so the idea that some realities are more real than others is, is, is meaningless. So the answer to your question, is the DMT space more real? Um, no, but it's not less real either. <laughs> it's as real. All perceptions are equally real. Um, and so if you are hallucinating, if you're having uh, what we would call a true hallucination, which, which psychedelics generally, apart from the, the tropane alkaloids, so if you smoke some belladonna or detura, um, then you might have what are called true hallucinations. So this is where you have hallucinations that are indistinguishable from reality. Your friend comes in, 
to your room uh, and offers to make you some coffee and you're talking to him for 10 minutes and then you look around and he's not there. He never was there, right? That's a true hallucination. Um, and we kind of distinguish those from visions. But even that true hallucination was as real as if your friend had actually been there, if that makes any sense, because the perception was real. You're always living within this model. Now, what varies not is, the, is not the reality of the model, the real, not the reality of the world that you're experiencing, but how it relates to the environment, its relationship with the environment. So in the case of a, what we would call a veridical perception, traditionally, a true perception, uh, what's happening is there is a functional relationship between the world that you're experiencing and, and, and what's actually going on out there in the environment, in that place, the, the, the objective external world to which we really have no access. We only have access for information coming from that, that space. Um, so if it's a veridical perception, then, um, then there is a functional adaptive relationship there. Whereas a hallucination would be not so much a false perception, but a non-adaptive perception. So you're seeing the world in a way that is, is not less real, it's just not as functional. It doesn't allow you to, it doesn't increase your survival chances ultimately, and it could actually decrease them. Um, so the DMT world is, is different entirely in a way in that it's, it's not an altered version of this reality. So, so we normally live within what's often called consensus reality. This is the the normal waking world, the familiar, stable, predictable world that we, we live in and that our brain has evolved to construct over millions of years, over throughout evolution, but also from the moment you're born and before even, uh, your brain is, is learning to construct and refine its model of reality. This is your consensus world. It's the world you assume to be the only world that your brain can construct. Um, what happens with DMT is rather than as with the other psychedelics, uh, well, certainly regular doses of psilocybin from mushrooms or LSD, what they tend to do is, 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 is generate or elicit a, an altered version of, of the consensus world. It tends to be a, a more fluid, less predictable, more unstable, richer, more information-rich version of the world. Whereas with DMT, it's as if you've switched to an entirely new channel. Uh, in that your brain is now constructing a completely novel, bizarre, alternate model of reality that has no relationship whatsoever to the consensus world. Uh, and that's, for me anyway, that's the most astonishing and remarkable uh, thing about DMT. How is the brain able? You know, the brain spent millions of years learning to construct this world, and yet you, it's, it's faced with... 30 milligrams of this very, very simple plant alkaloid, and suddenly it can just switch. It can turn on a dime, as you Americans would say, right? Uh, and start constructing these bizarre alien worlds filled with intelligent beings in hyperdimensional realities, filled with beings singing impossible objects into existence. Fuck, man. You know, that really is confounding. That, to me, as a neuroscientist, uh, you know, I have to say to people, this isn't easy to understand. This isn't, uh, this isn't, just hallucination. This isn't something you can say, oh, it's just, just your brain on drugs, man. Um, this is really hard to explain. Explain. It's confounding. Uh, based upon what I understand, 
um, about the way the brain works and the way the brain constructs reality. I have to shout at people and say, hey, this is a mystery. This is a true mystery, even for people like me. When I say people like me, I mean like, you know, scientists who are supposed to say, oh, it's just, you know, it's just you're stimulating the visual cortices and this is causing, really, you know, all this kind of stuff. Actually, it's, it's, it's a mystery, although it is being studied, um, but it's still very, very difficult to explain. DMT, it's, you, you talked about this post-biological <laughs> realm of um, maybe what you could refer to as this, this way that it, neuromodulation occurs uh, in the DMT zone, but also at the same time, there's, there's some sort of ancestral remembrance occurring at the same time. So it's, it's almost like, from my own experience, trying to sort of philosophize a little bit here that we're, we're almost on the cusp we're in this sort of liminal space of, of, of remembering, you know, like ancient philosophy is always about remembering who we are and, and imagining who we're going to become. And it seems to be this interesting, because I sort of approach it from a philosophical perspective with, with, a, with, a, with a new interest in the neuroscientific side about, you know, this ontological shock that's happening here. And, yeah. and maybe I can see this carryover or this crossover between, between this philosophical search for meaning and also this, 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 this realm of, of, of the DMT world that is really defies what we know about physics, what we know about chemistry. And it's what we, you know, beyond flesh and beyond blood, this post-biological realm. And like, like how, for me, it's a very, it's a very beautiful and frightening at the same time, sort of a, a, a space to be in, but it's, but it's maybe it's a, it's a space where we, we, we have a lot of responsibility. And we can, we can, once we get over this, do you, did you find that you, you sort of overcame this, ontological shock and then you got really into this okay now what do i do i've got some responsibility here and there's no turning back you know the door is well and truly open okay wow so there's a lot of points there let me deal with those <laughs> okay <laughs> sorry yeah 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 but no some really yeah some interesting ideas there so so you spoke about this 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 ontological shock and and that that's certainly the case this this term People will start using ontological shock a lot more now. I think I reintroduced it to apply to the DMT experience because originally I got the term ontological shock from John Mack, um, who uh, you know was this Harvard psychiatrist who would um, he would he would hypnotically put people under hypnosis and they would re-experience having being on alien spaceships and that kind of thing. And he was completely confounded by it. You know, these didn't seem to be people who had any kind of neuropsychological pathology, you know, they weren't crazy and yet they were recalling these experiences on alien spacecraft. Um, uh, and, 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 and he, he used this term ontological shock and that they were completely shocked or their entire underpinning of what's real and what's not real was completely shattered. And, and that's what DMT does. For me, it's, it's an experience of, of true ontological shock. You know, what you are experiencing is, you know, five minutes before you took DMT uh, was not even, it wasn't just impossible, it was inconceivable. Um, it's like, there's, there's no way for you to have even imagined this kind of space. Uh, and that is extremely shocking. Uh, it's not only is, is this space there, but it's, it's always there. And there's a very strong sense that it's always been there or it's been there for much, much longer than our parochial little universe and that's terrifying um, because immediately when you enter the space 
there are a number of feelings that you, you develop, at least for myself and from many other people I've spoken to. There is a strong sense of familiarity, uh, which you alluded to there, right? This powerful sense of deja vu. I've been here before. Now, the question that raises the question, when have you been there before, right? And we can talk about that in a second. Um, and there's also a very strong sense, a deeply, almost disturbing sense of very, very high levels of intelligence that this place is constructed. Um, this is not just a, an artifact. This is a, uh, uh, the product of an extremely um, high level of intelligence. Uh, and that's shocking, you know, because you've stumbled into a completely new world that's, that's extremely compelling. You had no idea it existed. You could have never have conceived of its existence. And yet here you are faced with this extreme intelligence. And yet somehow it seems very familiar. So there's a strong sense of, of deja vu. Now, deja vu is an interesting phenomenon in itself. Um, in that what's not quite clear, if you, if you read the, the psychological literature or the neuroscientific literature on deja vu, it's not quite clear whether... The deja vu is an illusion. Uh, you know, it is, it is associated with certain um, psychiatric pathologies. Um, certain people tend to have more like to experience deja vu. Uh, but also deja vu could be that you're actually experiencing a fragment of some kind of memory. Um, so in other words, sometimes deja vu can be completely illusion, uh, completely illusory not associated with any past experience and sometimes it really can be um you you you, you, have, you, you there's some kind of pattern in the external world that, that somehow mirrors an experience you've had in the past and it triggers this strong powerful sense of you've done it before even though you haven't really done it before um but something similar and and with dmt though this this sense of deja vu feels much deeper and and much more compelling it's not just that oh it's a fuck you know, like I really have been here before. Um, and that's very difficult to explain. Um, what, there's two things you can do with that. You can either dismiss it and say, oh, it's just an illusion. It's just another effect of the DMT. But why don't other drugs elicit this profound sense of deja vu like DMT seems to do so reliably? Uh, the alternative is to say, well, why? why? When could we have been there before? And there's, there's two answers. Uh, neither of them mainstream orthodox neuroscience, by the way. Uh, but the two answers that I, I normally get is, um, one is it's a place where you go after you die. Uh, and it's the place we came from before we were born. So assuming that you that life is you're going, you know, you're coming into life and then going back to where you were before when you die and then coming, perhaps coming out again. So if you believe in that we go through cycles of life, perhaps then perhaps DMT, the DMT space is somehow that, that space in between. Uh, and so in a sense, we have been there before, before we were born. That's, that's one approach. The alternative is perhaps that we, uh, which I also have written about is the idea that it's possible that DMT levels are actually higher in, in the fetus, in the womb. They are in, uh, in animals, um, in rodents at least. That doesn't necessarily apply to humans, but we know that DMT levels are higher in the rat brain at the fetal level and they drop off after birth. Um, so it's possible that the human brain is actually flooded with DMT throughout the gestation process 
and that the human, that the, the, the fetus before they can lay down memories as such is actually in some way connected to this DMT space, um, which would explain why it, it's familiar and yet you can't quite explain why. And it's also possible that even in the, the, uh, in the postnatal period, so when, you know, when you're a baby or very young, before you can, again, you know, in the first year of life, for example, it may be that there are times when the DMT levels are higher in the brain. Um, yeah, again, you know, this might explain the familiarity. Um, um, but, you know, of course, the DMT levels then drop as you develop and you become more and more cemented in this reality. Um, and, and then, of course, when you smoke DMT 20 years later or whatever, you, you have this very strong sense that you've, you've been there before. There are other explanations as well. Uh, but, you know, anything goes there. What is, uh, you know, why, you know, to trying to explain why, why, why it's so familiar. I think you mentioned this idea of an ancestral. This is something I, again, I uh, use this term ancestral neuromodulator, the idea that perhaps DMT was this, was functioning in human brains in a much more prominent sense uh, in epochs past. So maybe, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 years ago, that DMT might be um, released in the brain in much higher concentrations at certain times. I suggested perhaps during REM sleep, the, it's possible that the DMT levels rose in the brain um, and then would drop off because serotonin, which is kind of the counterpart to DMT, is what I, you might call the reality, um, the reality switch, the general kind of the consensus reality hallucinogen or psychedelic. Um, that's very high during the day. And then when you go into REM sleep at night, when you start dreaming, serotonin actually drops off. And it was my idea that perhaps DMT levels would rise in that time. So you would essentially, the, the ancestral form of dreaming would be when you would, you would spend the nighttime period within the DMT space. And that would explain a number of things. It would certainly explain perhaps why, firstly, why the DMT space seems so familiar, because it's something from our ancestral past. Uh, but it was also explain why, how the brain has essentially learned to construct this m bizarre model of reality. Um, because throughout, as I mentioned, throughout our evolution, we've been, our brain has been developing and evolving and learning to construct the normal model of reality. And so it really raised the question how it's able to construct this bizarre alien reality with such ease, such, so effortlessly. And, and if, if, if there is a long-standing relationship between DMT and the human brain, um, that might go somewhere to explaining that. But it, it's difficult to, you know, from a scientific perspective, it's a, it's a, it's a hypothesis, but it's a very difficult one to actually, um, to actually test. Um, okay, and then we get to, you spoke about responsibility. So I think, you know, whatever the, the cause of the deja vu, What's absolutely clear, to me at least, is that this space is filled with um, extremely intelligent beings. Now, what you, we can dismiss those as hallucinations, which I think would be perhaps a huge mistake, uh, or we could say we could treat them as, you know, say, okay, let's assume that you are, you are who you are. Let's assume that you are really a, an intelligent being from somewhere else. Where that place is, I don't know. But let's, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to assume you are who you say you are. To me, that's a much better way to approach these beings. 
it's 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 kind of arrogant. You know, we are a, we're, we've we've barely come down from the trees, right? You know, we are a young, intelligent species uh, with with an eye towards galactic citizenship. But we've we've rarely, you know, we've barely come from from the plains, and 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 we we have these we have a lot of kind of arrogance about our, our level, our place within the grand hierarchy of reality. And we kind of think we sit near the top, whereas I think we probably sit a few rungs from the bottom, to be honest. And so I think we should always approach these beings and say, well, if they really are intelligences from a, an alternate, some kind of alternate reality, then we should, we should be diplomatic. Um, we should treat them with great respect uh, and and yes, we do have responsibility. We if DMT is accessing, gating access to this, to a true realm filled with intelligent beings, then this is a, a massive discovery. It's the greatest discovery in the history of humankind. Um, and we, I really feel that we should bring our. I always say we should bring our best tools to the table. Um, that means we should treat DMT as a technology. It's it's a discovered tool it's a discovered technology for accessing an intelligence from outside our universe an extremely high level of intelligence so what do we do well we learn how to use the tool properly we don't just assume that the you know smoking it through a little glass pipe or or whatever uh, lighting incense uh, you know using a, a water bong or something like this is necessarily the best way to go um I think we should use our technology. We have technologies. You know, we are a, a pharmaceutical civilization. We have developed tools for administering drugs uh, in the most efficient and effective way possible. Uh, why not use those tools? Why should we limit ourselves and assume that, that, the, that the, the best way to administer DMT was discovered back in the 50s when, when people started smoking it? It's absurd. Um, so, so that's what I, what I've tried to bring to this is to, uh, is to, as as you say, treat DMT as a technology and use the 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 medical and clinical and pharmaceutical technologies that we've developed to think about you know what's the best way for us to go into that space and spend time there and interact with with the intelligences and work out who who they are you know do they really have something to tell us um, it's not good enough in my opinion, uh, to burst into this space um, for five minutes, wander around wide-eyed, and then, and then uh, clear off again. To me, that's an extremely undiplomatic and, and um, undignified way to, uh, to conduct ourselves. You know, if we do take this, if we do feel that we have a responsibility in this space, then we have a responsibility to treat them with respect. And that means going in there, treating them with the, with the, the respect they ostensibly deserve um, and, and spend some time there and say, okay, uh, you know, what can you, what can you tell us? What can you teach us? You know, can we explore this space? Can we do experiments within this space? Can we, you know, induct, induce people into the DMT space and then hold them there for an hour or two hours or three hours or longer uh, so they can actually conduct meaningful field work, so to speak. Uh, and then bring bring information back. Yeah, just to follow Could, up on that, it's my it's a <clears throat> it's kind of a thought that I have now that we that this whole idea of debating what is reality and what's sort of a hierarchy of reality is a little bit sort of 
a little bit old fashioned now. It's like, as you said before, and as you know, Don Hoffman, he referenced it earlier, like everything is reality. Everything that we experience is reality. And then, you know, it's a big part of, of DJ and I's work with, with, with the body work as well is that we, we bring all tools to the table to experience reality, to experience what it is that we're, that we're actually using our bodies for. And, and it, it made me think of, of, of something that Terence talked about, about this idea of reality being a culturally and linguistically sanctioned uh, hallucination. So again, why, yeah. why is it that we're so hung up on this is our reality? What is the, their reality? You know, so everything, if, if everything is a reality, then we can like get through the weeds in a way and then experience technology as it is and as we experience it. And we can, we can really be explorers, but we can be humble at the same time. And then we don't have to sort of, um, yeah, we can, we can, we can enter the doors. We can enter the doors with open eyes and really get back into the spirit of, of, of a McKenna, if you like. Uh, yeah, I, I agree entirely. You know, it's very important for us as a species to assume um, that the, the reality that you experience on a day-to-day -day basis when you open your eyes is, is, the, is the true, it's the real thing, yeah. right? It's important for your well-being, you know, to feel grounded that you have to, you have to, you have to assume this is the real thing. This is it. A any, um, this is the correct model of reality and anything that diverges from that is wrong. That's, you know, that's, that's what you, that's what, uh, that, that's kind of, we are, it is a culturally sanctioned way of thinking about reality. If it, if it diverges from this model that we experience, it's wrong. You have a psychiatric illness. You've taken a drug which has distorted that model. Um, so, so this is the old language. Um, and what I think Don Hoffman's been so important in pointing out is that not only is that incorrect um, or old fashioned, but it's not even scientifically supported. Um, you know, if we are a product of, of evolution. Um, and if we take that, if we take evolution seriously, we have to take seriously the fact that you know that the brain itself and the brain's model of reality is also a product of evolution uh, and thus uh, there's no way for the brain to know what is true and what is not true all the brain can do is, is discern uh, what is useful or not and so so yeah i think it's it's it, it what, what one can waste a lot of time on discussions of oh is it real or is it not real and i've always tried to point out you know inspired by Hoffman and others, um, that that's, it's not a very useful question. You know, trying to establish the ontological status of, um, of, of this, of the DMT space is not necessarily helpful. We should really be thinking about, you know, what, you know, and Terence McKenna used to say, you know, what can you show me? Uh, what can you show me? You know, it's not about, are you real, man? Uh, it's about, you know, what, what can they actually, what information can they, they import? Uh, that, that might be or might not be uh, of use to us. And, and that's the approach we should go in there, which, which, which means um, casting off our assumptions about what this space is uh, and going in there with, a, with an open mind and an open heart um, and, and be ready to learn. And you have to go in there as a student at, uh, and, and expect to be schooled. And very often you will be schooled. There's no doubt about that. You'll get some schooling in that space if you ask for it. Um, one other issue, I mean, one thing I do think about um, is, I think is slightly more useful than the, 
simply saying, oh, is it real? Or are these entities real? I'm interested in whether they have subjectivity. So um, what's his name? Uh, Thomas Nagel wrote this essay, what is it like to be a bat? Uh, and this, this idea that it's impossible for us to imagine um, what the way that the, a bat would experience the world. Um, but presumably there's something it's like to be a bat. And that really is the, the definition of subjectivity or of being a conscious being is there's something it's like to be that thing. You know, there's something it's like to be me. You have to take that Well, you have to assume that I'm telling the truth there. Um, and I assume there's something it's like to be you. And I can kind of imagine what it's like to be you, but I can't imagine what it's like to be a bat. Um, but <laughs> the point I'm getting to here is that a, if, if something is conscious, if, something, if there's something it's like to be something, then that thing is as real as it gets. You cannot deny, you know, Descartes famously demonstrated, you can never, you can deny anything, but you can never deny your own subjective consciousness. It leads to a contradiction. You can't deny that you exist. So you're, the only thing you absolutely 100% sure exists is your own mind. Um, and presumably that also applies to machine elves or any other entities within that space. If they, Giulio Tononi, this famous neuroscientist um, who uh, developed the integrated information theory of consciousness, which I've also written about related to the psychedelic state, that's a different issue. Um, he, he said to me at a conference once, he said, you know, everything is real, but conscious things are really real. Um, they're really real. Um, so I'm really real. Everything that, you know, everything that's going on around me, the world that I'm experiencing, that's real. But I, but that, that self, that, that the subjectivity is really real. Um, and so that means that if these entities have subjectivity, they're as real as me. They're equally un, un, unable to deny their own existence as I am. Uh, and that's a profound thought, which means that they are, they are really really real. They're not just maybe real or partially real. If they are, if they, if they have subjectivity, if they experience a world from behind their eyes, um, then they're as real as we are. And we should treat them as such. Are oh, you touched on, <laughs> let me sink the, let it sink in a little bit. <laughs> you touched a little bit on the um, tool that you proposed with Dr. Rick Strassman, the uh, yeah. target controlled intravenous DMT to be able to spend time in the DMT space longer. And it makes me think of like, if that's the new realm of exploration, it might be one of the biggest discoveries ever. And mm. it's, it's kind of like the newer version of the space program, right? And right. Yeah. who do we spend the, the best of the best? I'm thinking, do we want to send a scientist, a psychonaut, a shaman, um, and then what tools do we equip them with to be able to capture or bring some sort of information back? Is, do you have anything in your mind on how that protocol would work? Well, it's currently in the early stages. So I should probably give a little bit of background. Um, so yeah, so I, I wrote a paper with Rick Strassman in 2016, I think it was now, in which we proposed this idea. I mean, it, it always occurred to me that DMT is this, it's this special, it's this unique psychedelic and that it has these pharmacological kind of peculiarities and that it's, it's very short acting. 
It's completely non-toxic. It doesn't exhibit tolerance. That's the key observation. So you can inject someone with DMT and then, you know, they go through the experience and they record a certain intensity rating of the experience using Rick Strassman's hallucinogen rating scale. Then you inject them again 15 or 30 minutes later and they're intact with the same amount of the drug and their experience is exactly the same. So it doesn't seem to have subjective tolerance, which is really fascinating uh, because other psychedelics do seem to, to exhibit that. And that to me suggests that in combination with its lack of toxicity, the fact that it's broken down so efficiently and rapidly in the brain and in the body, meant that you could, rather than simply giving someone an injection, a bolus injection of the drug, you could actually use the same technology that uh, anesthesiologists use when they, when they induce someone into an unconscious state for surgery. They use a, a sh very short-acting drug that doesn't exhibit tolerance, that doesn't build up in the body, so it's non-toxic. Um, and, and, the, and they use a mathematical model of what's called a pharmaco kinetic and pharmacodynamic model. So it's basically a mathematical model of the way the, the drug is distributed and metabolized in the, in the body and, the, and in the brain. Um, and and they, they, they deliver it by an infusion using a device, an infusion device that delivers according to this mathematical model a program, um, delivers the drug into the, the veins and, and thus into the brain and actually maintains a relatively stable concentration of drug in the brain that you can then manipulate. You can push them deeper uh, or you can bring them into a more shallow kind of state of anesthesia. Um, and so in my, in my brain, at least that's, it's an absolute no brainer that this is how we should be administering DMT because DMT um, has the re required pharmacological properties. So we should be able to bring someone into the DMT state, induce them to different levels, um, maintain a constant level of DMT in the brain or push, it, push them deeper so they can experience perhaps levels of the DMT space, uh, which are all open to exploration. Very interesting stuff. Um, and then we can perform proper, proper phenomenological and structural and, you know, um, anthropological kind of studies with, with the molecule uh, within the space. Um, you know, it makes perfect sense to me. And so... So I, I, I fired off an email to Rick and said, hey, you know, do you have the data? Because to actually develop this, you need real data from humans. So you need blood data. So you need that the levels of DMT in the blood after you inject someone with, with DMT. And of course, Rick Strassman got that data back in the 90s. Um, and I thought maybe he'd still had it somewhere. Fortunately, it was tucked away in some Excel file in, in the deepest corner of one of his hard drives. Uh, and he sent it to me and, and the rest is history really. Um, so we wrote this paper and developed this model. And now people are um, really picking up the mantle. We have a team in Imperial College London. They're, they're interested in using this technology more for their, I think for their neuroimaging work so they can have much better control uh, and have people inside the MRI scanner, for example, for a much longer period of time and, and, and do much more detailed analyses. And then there's a team in Boulder, Colorado, who is also doing it, We're trying to develop the technology for much more kind of DMT space exploration, more of the kind of NASA um, metaphor analogy that you use there. Um, yeah, so that's, 
that's the state of where we are currently. Sorry, was there, there was another question in there, but I forgot what it was. Well, I, I'm thinking like in the psychedelic space, Yeah. what tools can you bring other than oh, like yeah, yeah, wits yeah. and your breath and your intention? Uh, do you, can you think of a protocol to help? I mean, w what would you even ask for? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm not the expert in that. I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in um, preparation for psychedelic trip navigation. I mean, there are a lot of people who, who are explicitly interested in that. You know, how do you prepare, best prepare uh, for a DMT uh, trip or any other kind of psychedelic experience and how do you navigate it? And, and these people are going to be really important. It's not just about, it's not going to be just about neuroscientists, the pharmacologists or whatever. It's also going to be about people who really understand and, and have a, you know, a lot of experience within the space. We don't, we don't care whether a shaman really has access to the spirit world. That's not important. The important thing is, are, are they able to uh, navigate the space uh, in, in a useful way um, that allows one to orient oneself? You know, this is the, really the problem with DMT. It's very difficult to orient oneself in the space and actually make sense of it. I think that will change. I think this... Normally, when people take DMT, they're, because they're only there for a few minutes, you, you never get a chance to orient yourself. And you're as quick, as fast as your brain kind of works out, oh, I need to, how to kind of construct this new model of reality, you're already being dragged out again. So I think that should hopefully stabilize with, with the extended state experiments. But you're still going to need uh, people who understand the space deeply, perhaps people who have taken DMT many, many times. Um, and so that's not just going to include, certainly not just going to include neuroscientists. You know, I, I, I propose that you're going to have anthropologists and cartographers and mathematicians and biologists and theologians and, you know, you name it, um, linguists, perhaps, um, lots of different types of people that will be able to, you know, both before the expedition, so to speak. So people are going to say, okay, we need to do this experiment. We need to establish this. This is a good way to measure this, or this is a good way to establish this kind of structure within the space. Uh, you know, if you wanted to determine, you know, is this really a higher dimensional space? People often describe going to a higher dimensional reality. Well, that's just, uh, it's hard to know what they mean by that. And they will say, well, I saw all sides of an object at once, or there were other dimensions that don't exist in this world. It was an impossible space, these kind of things. There might be ways uh, to actually test that, to say, okay, you know, uh, you know some kind of um, hyper-dimensional mathematician, you know, geometer or, or, or whatever, or expert in you know, topologist might say, okay, you need to do this and do this in this space. And, and this should establish this kind of relation. You know, is it, if you do this with your hands and then do this, you know, is it the same distance approximately, or does it expand in one direction? These kind of things, right? Um, and then they might be to establish whether or not you're actually experiencing a high dimensional space, whether that's or something else. So, so certainly you need people from a lot of disciplines. You know, as you would, you know, if you're setting off for space, you, you have chemists, you have geologists, you have mathematicians, you have engineers, all these different kinds of people. The same applies, I think. Uh, it's a, probably a, a somewhat an overlapping but distinct skill set, certainly. But certainly, it's, it, this is not, it's going to be a team of people, I think, that would allow us to, to make the most of, of this kind of period of exploration of this, in, this entirely new world. Then... 
you asked, you know, what, how are we going to bring back information? And that's another issue as well. Uh, you, you, you have someone immersed within this high dimensional um, reality. And normally they have, their eyes are closed and you have to wait for them to come back. Uh, and that's one approach. You could train people to, um, uh, to recall their experiences very, in a very detailed way, but that's often quite difficult. Uh, and, and memory can be quite deceptive sometimes. Or alternatively, uh, you could develop means of two-way communication so that people can actually communicate their experience or communicate certain features of the experience during the, during the experience. And that could be verbally, or it could be using some kind of device. Now, Timothy Leary, oddly enough, people think of him, he just sat around saying, turn on, tune in, drop out. He didn't. He was, he was very involved, not just with LSD and, and, and psilocybin mushrooms, but also with DMT. And he developed a machine um, that was basically like two keypads um, that you would have beside you. And it was connected in those days, it was connected to one of those pens on paper that would kind of, uh, you know, and, and, and actually draw. Now, of course, it would be connected to a computer. Um, and the idea is that these a simple set of keys, so, you know, one per finger, uh, and your thumb, and then you can use that to communicate simple information that's not overly overwhelming. So you're not having to type on a, a full kind of keyboard or anything like that, but you're able to communicate certain aspects, certain features, uh, certain details, characteristics of the experience back uh, to the people on the other side. And, and that was in the 60s, man. So, um, man, 60s, man. Um, so surely now, you can think of the kind of technology that modern day um, linguists and, and mathematicians and other kind of you know, communication scientists would be able to, to, to bring up, you know, if they could, um, if they could develop some kind of tool where you can actually coherently transmit and efficiently transmit information from your experience in real time, uh, that would also be a game changer. So yeah, we need engineers and, computer scientists and all these kind of people as well. Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the big reasons that we, we're trying to have these discussions because we, you know, we're a couple of common blokes who, you know, who maybe we met through the, well, the movement world, the, the strength and conditioning world, that sort of thing. And, and we realized that, you know, a lot of people are, are using psychedelics and they're using psychedelics for, a lot of different purposes and there's a lot of curiosity out there and and but but there doesn't seem to be sort of a i don't want to call it a central sort of an organ but there doesn't seem to be a too much of a conversation about the need and the interest to bring a lot of these these sort of apparently disparate categories of people to to actually talk about the same thing because in, in, in a sense we're talking about the same thing we're talking about experience we're talking about you know, what, what the hell is it like to be human and to be in this world? And, and I mean, again, we refer back to your, to your, um, your discussion of subjectivity, because I think that's such an important thing because we're, we're in this space and we're, we're all experiencing reality. We're all kind of, you know, especially in these times, we're all a little bit sort of perplexed about, you know, what are we supposed to be doing, you know, during these, during these upheaval times that we can talk about uh, a lot of these sort of, philosophical questions become quite apparent, I think. And I think, you know, my question maybe is what, what, what's the role of, of the psychedelic and maybe the, 
the socio-cultural landscape going forward? Does that, do you think psychedelics will always have a, a sort of a, a fringe interest or could this, could this become sort of something a bit more um, vital to, to, to the future of, of humanity? I know it's a very broad question, but, but yeah. Well, I think it should. I think psychedelics, mm. the, I think the, certainly psychedelics are becoming more mainstream. But again, what you mean, what one means by mainstream, there are a number of ways one can interpret that term. Some people welcome the idea that psychedelics are clearly experiencing a renaissance. You know, the psychedelic renaissance is, is a term that you will, you will hear a lot these days. Um, and, and that's, that's um, manifesting in a number of different ways. So firstly, from kind of my world, the, the neuroscience world, uh, the pharmacology world, um, the kind of basic science kind of um, space where people are where, you know, putting people in MRI machines and uh, and really starting to get to grips now with with uh, in human in humans what actually psychedelics are doing. So we we we, we psychedelics are becoming in a sense much less mysterious uh, and much less frightening uh, because we now understand what what's actually they're doing in the brain. So they're becoming more scientifically mainstream. Um, they're also becoming clinically mainstream. So the, the limited number of studies now, but the number of studies is really exploding where psychedelics are being used to treat, you know, often debilitating and intractable neuropsychiatric conditions. So people who have been on every possible antidepressant, um, uh, you know, are basically the only other, the last option is, is suicide. You know, these kind of people are suddenly becoming uh, one or two psilocybin sessions and are you know, 80 or 90% of their depression is gone and stays gone. Uh, you know, people with post-traumatic stress disorder being treated with, with psychedelics, with MDMA. Um, it, psychedelics have, in my opinion, they, well, I don't say, just say they have the potential to, I think they will revolutionize psychiatry. They're going to revolutionize the treatment of, of, of psychiatric illness in that we go from a old model of psychiatric conditions are treated by giving someone a drug which they take every day uh, for the rest of their lives uh, or until the drug, drug stops working or is too toxic. Uh, and they develop debilitating side effects and they have to stop the drug and give them a new drug. You know, so we go from that model, uh, which has been the established model for, you know, a hundred years, um, to a model where someone goes into a clinic, takes a high dose of, of psilocybin or LSD, does that a couple of times, uh, basically resets the brain, shakes up the brain, puts the brain into this highly plastic, malleable state, shakes it up, re realigns all of these aberrant and pathological networks, develops new patterns of positive patterns of activity in the brain. They come down off the drug. The brain is essentially reorganized, reset, off they go. Uh, their, their life restored, their brain restored to a much, much healthier condition. No more drugs required. You know, that's revolutionary. Uh, and it's, I think it's hard for people to appreciate how revolutionary that is. Um, you know, that's just astonishing. Uh, and that is becoming mainstream now. Um, then you've got the, I, would, I guess you would refer to it as the, the cultural mainstreaming of psychedelics, where it's becoming, it's be, you know, psychedelics are appearing more and more in 
um, in magazines and in the news and on television, um, partly because of the, the, the scientific and clinical mainstreaming. So people hear about psychedelics more and more now. People are not just hearing scare stories about, you know, alleged scare stories about people jumping off buildings thinking they can fly after taking LSD, you know, kind of old 1960s propaganda stuff. People are hearing new information. Uh, um, and so, so, so clearly psychedelics are becoming more and more part of modern society and modern culture. And, and that's even the case with DMT. I mean, 10 years ago, the, most people, if you asked them what DMT was, wouldn't have a clue. Now there are stories about people using vape pens and smoking DMT or vaping DMT like that. Um, DMT seems much more common now. Uh, and, and again, with salvia, I mean, I first got interested in salvia in, in the late 90s, and I can pretty much bet that 99 people out of 100, if I asked them, you know, what's salvia divinorum, they wouldn't have a clue. Now, salvia, everybody knows about salvia. Haven't you tried salvia? Everyone's tried salvia. You know, it's kind of like that, right? Everybody's done salvia. Um, and because it was for a while, and still is in many places anyway, you know, it was this legal psychedelic that you could buy anywhere um, until, of course, the government had to deal with that. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, so it's, it's becoming much more mainstreamed. Now, there are also, now, of course, there are, for many people, that's welcomed. Like, yes, this is great. Um, it's important. You know, we've been working for this for decades to bring psychedelic into the mainstream. So people are talking about it, realizing these aren't scary, frightening drugs. However, there's also a group of people um, who have this strong sense that this is, this is mine. This is our space. This is our special space just for us. Right. You know, this is uh, and, and, and we don't want the normal people, the masses to hear about this. This is us. we're we're the gatekeepers. Right. And, and, and so there is this kind of resistance um, to even to doctors using psychedelics. Um, people have this fear and it's not entirely unfounded. People have this fear. You know, what what is big pharma going to do when they get hold of psychedelics? Um, and, and yeah, I can understand that fear. But it's, it's not entirely warranted either. I, don't th I think we have to be a little bit careful, careful about um, simply dismissing. Well, I think we, it's, it, in fact, I think it's absurd to simply dismiss the clinical application, the mainstream clinical application of psychedelics when they can clearly have so much benefit. Uh, you know, these aren't drugs that are simply going to be passed to you know, pharmaceutical companies for them to kind of hand out like, like 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 smarties do you have smarties in america i don't know little sweets anyway like, like candy. candy like candy right um the, you know these are drugs that are going to be used by trained psychotherapists in a, in a very specific condition so, so i don't see in my opinion i don't see the same opportunity for big pharma to really get their mitts on psychedelics as much simply because of the way that they're being used um of course one always has to be a little bit careful about you know, the kind of pharma, pharmaceutical opportunists, which always emerge within, the, within these kind of spaces. And it's obvious, right? There's so many, you know, people are now in San Francisco have sat around a desk drinking their, uh, their Colombian coffee or whatever, um, vaping and thinking and writing and thinking about how they can, how they can make, a, you know, they, their new startup, their new psychedelic startup. Uh, and there's always going to be the, that kind of crowd, right? Um, mainly in, I guess, in the Northwest, Pacific Northwest. I don't know, but, um, but you know what I mean? Um, yeah, basically. 
Um, so, so that's obvious that's going to emerge. You can't expect, oh God, that's my um, postman. Sorry, can I, like 30 seconds? <laughs> sure. sure. Man, how, yeah, how weird is Salvia? <laughs> you tried that, I haven't tried that. It's a dissociative, right? Oh yeah, I remember it. We, we, we would do it quite often when it was legal and it was just so bizarre. It, it wasn't enjoyable, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, I knew, my postman always comes about this time. I thought, I'm, he's gonna, I know he's gonna interrupt, but anyway, he did. Have you got another 10 minutes, Andrew? Or are you short oh yeah, yeah, no. no, 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 we're fine. Yeah, don't worry, I have to, 10 o'clock is my, so it's 50 minutes is maximum that I can do. But yeah, we can go on as long as you want. How are you DJ for time? Oh, I'm good. All good. It's the middle of the night for, for me. I drew this trip yeah, out of the, out of the yeah, three yeah, hours. I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where were we anyway? What was I saying? Um, yeah. So yeah, you have to expect there are going to be some opportunists within the space and that's, that's obviously going to be the case, but that doesn't mean you should sort of cancel the whole enterprise. It's absurd. Um, yeah, so there are good and bad players in, in, in the psychedelic space, as you would expect. But I think one just, all that one can do is, is try to be one of the good players, um, try to um, mainstream psychedelics for the right reasons, bring them to people's attention, talk about psychedelic drugs, talk about how powerful and useful they are. Um, you know, in, in Japan, you know, <laughs> uh, it's, 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 it's difficult because their, their attitude to drugs is kind of draconian and, and comes from, again, it's just a, I think across the world, cultures are incapable of having rational discussions about drugs. It's all, their heads are filled with propaganda. They have no, they have no real understanding of, of, of these molecules or how they work or, or the true, you know, which ones are dangerous, and which ones aren't. It's all just lumped together and they, that, that, you know, it's ingrained from, you know, from the age of a child, you know, drugs, drugs are for mugs, right? You know, this kind of stuff, just say no, just nonsense. Uh, and and, and, and it, it's just poorly ill-informed and, and bad education that drives all of this. And so there's a lot of work to get out of that mire of bad education uh, and get people into a more enlightened state where they can realize actually, yes, some drugs are extremely harmful. You know, meth, no one's arguing that meth is a good, good idea for anybody to be taking. Um, but when meth gets lumped in with, 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 with psilocybin mushrooms, you know, as a schedule one drug or class A in the UK, um, then there's something clearly wrong there. And that needs, that needs to change. People need to realize actually it's, it's, they're not the same at all. One can be extremely beneficial, clearly, uh, and it's been demonstrated now in, in, in uh, you know, clinical settings across the world. Uh, and one is much more, one is clearly of great harm. Uh, and then you, you, you have different policies and how you deal with individual drugs. Um, in Japan, of course, they, they're, they're still in that stage where they're, they're not even having that discussion and they have some weird, it's weird in Japan, you know, they have a really bad, cannabis in Japan is, is the worst drug. Um, <laughs> Same, right? You know, that is associated with laziness. If you smoke cannabis, you're going to get addicted to cannabis. That's the, that's the, what they're taught. Uh, and then you're going to be lazy and there's nothing worse than a lazy, mono. you know, a lazy person in, in Japan is, is kind of the worst evil, of course, right? Someone who doesn't go to work and doesn't work, someone doesn't producing. Um, so yeah, so cannabis is, is, has, um, 
they have a very negative attitude to cannabis and meth. Meth is kind of a bit more understandable, I guess, right? Um, but but cannabis, mm, yeah, it's strange. But what it does mean actually is that 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 all of the kind of law enforcement efforts, or at least kind of government efforts to deal with drugs, they're all focused on meth and and cannabis generally, uh, which is kind of weird, uh, but, but it's, the, it's the case. So psychedelics, no one's really interested in psychedelics, actually. People aren't, you know, the governments aren't debating harsher laws for, for people who take psychedelics. And there are a number of psychedelics, actually, that are, that are legal in Japan. Well, mescaline, certainly, or the um, San Pedro cactus is, is legal in, in, in Japan, and people do import that and, and use that. And there are small circles, small groups of people that, that take um, San Pedro cactus took a serious, you know, um, and, and, and it's fine. And there are even uh, ayahuasca circles in Japan as well. Um, so the government, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's focused so much on cannabis and meth that it kind of fortunately in a kind of a weirdly kind of positive way, it, it doesn't, it's not so concerned about psychedelics. Yeah. I kind of, also notice that uh, those appropriate channels that cultures kind of set up as gatekeepers to mm. do the sacred medicine in their ceremony or, or their ritual. Um, and mm. they feel like they kind of have ownership over that. And I'm glad Western science is coming in and mm. looking, looking at it from the outside and seeing what's happening in the brain and looking at the correlations. And I think it takes both because there's a lot of information and empirical evidence you know they've gathered from these years uh, of the indigenous people doing plants mm. but also you know science is i think we need it to take it to the next step and they have to work together it makes me think of that space program you're talking about you need the maverick fighter pilot <laughs> and then you need people behind the controls yeah i think i think the problem is is i agree with you there and i think that there's a, there's mistrust on both sides so the 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 kind of the the ritualistic kind of hippie if you like kind of or you know that kind of psychedelic community the underground psychedelic community that have been using psychedelics illegally for many years they mistrust the government and who can blame them they mistrust the pharmaceutical companies who can blame them uh, they mistrust often medical science, you know, perhaps a bit weird, but, but yeah, they, they, they mistrust a lot of people in the mainstream. Uh, and they don't certainly don't trust them to be gatekeepers. Uh, and I, I kind of agree with that. I don't think government should be dictating how psychedelics should be used. Um, I certainly think that yes, mainstream Western medical science needs to have access and be using these and they have to use them in the most, in the safest and most effective and efficient way possible. Um, obviously, so, 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 so they need to have that control. However, certainly that doesn't mean, and I think this is the fear from, from the more underground psychedelic community is that, is that, that, that they're going to be stripped of even more power, um, that, and that the government is going to be, but you know, the government already claims to be gatekeepers. They already claim to have shut the gate. They already claimed that, that you know, you can't use psychedelics because they're illegal. You know, we've told you you can't, but people have been using psychedelics anyway. It's not as if people up, up till now relied on government permission to be taking psychedelics. Of course not. People, you know, the vast majority, 99% of people who take psychedelics are doing so against 
um, the, the advice and the permission of the government. They're breaking the law. They're committing crimes. Um, so the idea that this is going to affect the underground um, psychedelic use and the underground psychedelic community, I think, is, is probably unfounded. Um, I, don't, I don't think it will have that effect. Alternatively, I mean, I think sometimes they also feel that it's going to um, shift the focus from legalization, i.e. giving everyone basically the right to use psychedelics towards medicalization, uh, where um, they, the government basically says, look, we've legalized them now. Doctors can prescribe them. Doctors can use them. Whereas the psychedelic community is saying, well, well, no, 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 that's not enough. We, we want to use them ourselves. We don't want to have to rely on a doctor to write a prescription. And I think that is a, 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 a legitimate concern is that, um, is that the government will basically say, yeah, we have already, we, we've, we, we've done what you required. You know, we've made these legal now. We, we've made them, but only legal for certain people. And I don't think they like that idea, nor do I actually. I think people should be, um, I don't feel that it's it's up to governments to be dictating um, what states of consciousness you are allowed or not allowed to access. Uh, I think it's dangerous and I think it's um, it's backwards. Um, but yeah, it's never stopped me. <laughs> I think there's something very libertarian about all of chemistry, and uh, in, in the same way as, as as mysticism itself. You know, there's it's like it's it's. Uh, it's a very egalitarian realm to sort of to, to, to experience and to 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 intellectualize to to partake to partake in and you know and as you say it's, it's not going to stop you know the exploration of one's own consciousness and imagination is never going to be stopped by rules and regulations about what certain reality is allowed or is not allowed so i think mm. you know i think a lot of that noise is 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 sort of yeah i don't i don't really know but i'm 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 coming at this from a as a former academic a former anthropologist who who was very steeped in this sort of politically correct way of of speaking about cultural appropriation you know and once that becomes politicized you know then that's that's where you see um you know that's probably where i i jumped out of that whole game you know because i mm. <laughs> i realized that you know if these these chemicals and these plant these plant medicines once they once they become attached to some sort of dogma about who should be using them and who shouldn't be using them and, ha and certainly how they should be used um, then that sort of I think that de defeats the whole purpose about this sort of this sort of collective consciousness and this maybe this move towards intergalactic beingness that you talk about in your yes book I mean for me I mean again I. For me, I, I'm, I'm not overly concerned about government's attempt to, con to control psychedelics because they've been so wholly fucking ineffect you know, ineffectual um, and completely ineffective in, in doing so. Then I have no reason. You know, psychedelics for me, drugs more generally, but psychedelics seem to have this inbuilt defense mechanism against authoritarian governments, right? Think about... Um, and this is partly to do with uh, chemistry. It's also partly to do with their biology. So think about one of the most commonly used psychedelics, of course, magic mushrooms. Magic, growing magic mushrooms is very, very simple. Um, controlling spores, controlling the distribution of spores is effectively impossible. Once you've got spores 
growing magic mushrooms is trivial. You know, you can go, you can spend an hour on YouTube and work out and learn how to do it. Bit of practice, it's easy. It's impossible to control magic mushrooms. It's impossible to because it's impossible to control the distribution of spores. So spores are the perfect way, uh, and they're so resilient. You know that you can you can send them around the world. You probably send them into space. Um, they they are extremely resilient, um, and so you can't control magic mushrooms. What about DMT? Well, DMT is found everywhere. It's in countless plant species. It's everywhere you look. There are certain species that you know are more famous than others in having very high concentrations. But again, and extracting DMT is extremely simple. You can't control DMT, right? So the the the, the key, the the really important psychedelics are impossible to control uh, essentially for governments uh, and so there's nothing they can do barring banning the, the cultivation of all mushrooms and um, there'd be a lot of amateur mycologists that would uh, would, would certainly uh, not be happy about that um, so no you can't control dmt you can't control mushrooms and it's only going to get worse for the government you, you spoke about chemistry here and this being kind of egalitarian and you know i always see chem chemistry is, is democratic anybody can do chemistry um, you have to learn it. It's a skill. Um, some would say, well, it is. It's an art, really, as well. You have to learn it, but anybody can do chemistry. And, and, and so anybody really can, can construct, anyone can be their own drug chemist. Now, of course, they try to deal with that by, by making not just drugs themselves illegal, but also their precursors. Um, you know, you, you, can't, you can't buy the precursors to certain drugs. You can't buy it, you know, diethylamine, for example, uh, which is used to make LSD. You know, you, you can't buy certain precursors. But again, that only works for a while because as chemistry develops, there are a number of ways that you can, you can construct molecules. Uh, again, it's not really an issue for, for DMT and psilocybin because, because they are natural and they're easily produced, easily grown and easily um, extracted. There's no way they can deal with it. It's only going to get worse also once people discover, and there's now been, there've been a couple of papers recently in the last year or so that have demonstrated the, um, the, the insertion of the a, a, a gene set, basically. So uh, it's got a biosynthetic gene uh, gene set, which is basically the set of genes required by uh, the magic mushroom, for example, to make psilocybin, to actually insert that into yeast so that you feed yeast sugar uh, and the yeast produces psilocybin. Now that is going to be even more, once that escapes the lab, and it will, um, that um, is going to be even easier then to produce psilocybin. You don't have to grow mushrooms. You basically have a little packet of yeast, which again, you can send around the world. Um, you mix it with basically some sugary water. You wait a few days, and then you've got a, a nice psilocybin drink. And then you can save the yeast as well. Uh, and then you can dry the yeast, which you'll have much more then. Uh, and you can send little packets of that around the world to your friends. Uh, and there's no control then. Uh, and think about that with any drug you can imagine. Any drug that is produced biosynthetically, in other words, that's produced by an organism, could in theory, uh, you, could, you could insert those genes into something fast growing and something that's, you know, that, that's used in biotechnology, uh, such as a yeast. Uh, and then, then, then the, the cat really is out of 
the back. There's no way ever it's going back in after that. Then, then there's the governments really need to think about you know, legalization. Then would be the only option because once you accept that you have not just very little control as they do now, but absolutely no control over these drugs, then what's the alternative? You just have to say, well, nothing we can do. What's the point in wasting our time? Reminds me of, uh, of Sasha Shulgin's uh, shed at the back of his place, you know, and his, all the work that he was, he was doing in the, in the 90s and, uh, well, longer than that, actually. And actually, oh, yeah. actually working at some in, at some period uh, as as an advisor for uh, for the DEA uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Shulgin, it's remarkable. People, if you're outside of this kind of psychedelic arena, people don't realise the significance of Shulgin. But you know, it wasn't just MDMA. Uh, there are a number of drugs, two CB and two CI, and 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 a range actually. You know, there's a couple of hundred drugs, I think, in, in PCAL. I forget the exact number. Maybe it's not quite that many. But anyway, there's a large number of drugs. Um, and, and many of them were, you know, if you, if, you, if you search the mainstream literature, if you go on PubMed and, and um, search for A.T. Shulgin, uh, you will find very, very large numbers of papers. So, you know, he was, he was working independently in his shed, as you said, in his backyard. But he was producing... Um, brand new drugs, which subsequently were tested in animals and in humans and, and featured in, in, in mainstream um, uh, journals. And, and, and some of them now are being trialed in mainstream clinical trials for you know, psychiatric conditions. So his work was extremely important, despite the fact that he was always fighting the system that was trying to oppress him and basically stop him doing this work. Uh, fortunately, he had the gumption and the balls to... Um, you know, he wasn't someone to, to mess around with Shulgin. I mean, he was quite an irascible kind of character. Um, I only met him once briefly walking into a lecture, um, but um, he, he had this aura of, um, aura of, you know, don't get on my, my, the wrong side of me because, you know, he certainly, he, he could tell you what, what he thought, I think. And I, I think that that helped him, that attitude of not really caring what the government um, want him to do with his life and want him, you know, want him to stop constructing these molecules. You know, he loved it. You know, he loved tinkering around in his dusty old laboratory and making new molecules, you know, giving birth essentially to, to brand new molecules that have never existed before. I mean, you can imagine the, the sense of anticipation and excitement to, to create, you know, to, to, to crystallize and have this white crystal in, in, in a jar that is a molecule that a couple of hours ago didn't exist. You created something completely brand new. Um, and then wondering, you know, what, what effects going to be in humans. And then he started his, his protocol for testing it on himself. Of course, first, you know, he was a very ethical sign. He didn't inject into rats um, or cats or mice or whatever. Uh, he tried it on himself first. Every single drug he tried on himself first to test initial effects. Then he would very slowly move to more people, you know, uh, um, you know his wife, of course, and then his, his small group, his psychedelic research group, which he had, um, who would come around to his house, you know, on a Sunday afternoon or whatever, and they would take this brand new molecule. Sometimes it was a dud. Sometimes it would make them 
feel not so good. And then sometimes they would have these magical experiences. Sorry, it's my <laughs> door again. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Can you believe this is our life, Tom? We're getting to talk to uh, amazing story, man. Andrew Gallimore in Japan over a screen. Man, I could hear these stories all, all night. <laughs> yeah, so good. <laughs> My dealer, oh, not really, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, so yeah, Shulgin, man. Wow, what a guy. <laughs> There's a beautiful old grainy video on YouTube of him and Terence actually, I think they were walking through a cemetery or something in uh, Czech Republic or something. And it was like the early 90s, I think it was. It's really it's worth a greenhouse, watching. Greenhouse, I think. I think it was a, was it a greenhouse. I, in my head, I know that movie. Yeah. In my it was head, like 15 minutes or something. It was just yeah, a really yeah. beautiful discussion of just life, yeah. you know, like two real legends who were just, who were so far ahead of their time, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Terence, I mean, obviously it was a great loss. Terence's loss obviously was, was greater in, in that it was too early. I mean, Shulgin had a hell of a life and, um, you know, he reached the reasonably you know, ripe old age. So we have to expect that we lose these people. Um, but obviously it's important that people pick up the mantle as well i mean who is i mean who's who is in a uh, in a post shulgin um who is uh, making drugs in their backyard brand new molecules and testing them you know there might be people but um th there's nobody i think quite like shulgin with with quite the the the, the chemical chemistry kind of acumen and to to really to really kind of deeply understand these molecules that, that you know, he, he understood the phenethylamine um, molecular skeleton better than anybody else in the world and how um, modifying this skeleton and, and kind of derivatizing it and how that, you know, leads to particular patterns of, of pharmacological activity and ultimately affects on consciousness. There's nobody quite like him, I think, and we need people like him because there are other molecules. I mean, Shulgin did the, the, the two main groups, right? The phenethylamines, which is basically mescaline derived. So that's the one group. And then you have the tryptamines, arguably the more important one, at least um, because it contains LSD, you know, the, the tryptamine family contains LSD and of course DMT, 5-methoxy-DMT, ibogaine, etc. Um, and so he did, he kind of did both of those groups of, of molecules. But of course, that doesn't mean that there aren't, well, there almost certainly are. The whole um, kind of um, spaces within chemical structural space um, that are completely unexplored. Um, Shulgin had a kind of a starting point with mescaline and, and tryptamine, um, but there are potentially, and this is some, a question I always wanted to ask him is, is, is where next? You know, he spoke about quinolines from, from cacti. Uh, he was going to write a book, I think, called Quikal. Quinolines I have known and loved, um, but he never got around to that. And, and, and so it would be interesting for people to actually go through his, um, you know, the Shulgin Index, for example, and look at these structures and think, okay, where can we take this now? Where can we go? What's a good starting point? What's a good starting molecular skeleton? 
that we can build on and, and find new drugs. But I don't think there is anyone doing that. Um, you certainly can't leave it to the, the pharmaceutical industry because they're not going to be testing these drugs on themselves. They're going to be looking for, you know, other kind of biological activity and, and, and for treatment of other kind of conditions. They're not looking to be exploring the, the varied altered states of consciousness like Shulgin was. So we actually have a, a question sent in talking okay. about exogenous chemicals we're taking in the like new age um, hippie circles. You'll see people claim that we don't need uh, exogenous DMT. We have uh, some yogic breathwork practice that could, um, you know, endogenously dump DMT as a neurobiologist. Is that plausible at all? Are they experiencing, you think something very different? Um, I, I can't say whether it's plausible. I can say whether it's possible. Um, it's technically possible in that what we don't know, well, when I say possible, I'm coming from a position of ignorance. And I, I mean, when I say ignorance, I mean like ignorance within the scientific community about the source of DMT in the human body, what we know. So these are the facts, basically. We know that DMT is produced in the human body. We know that because we've found it and people have been looking for it since the 1950s in blood and in urine. So we know that it's produced in humans, but generally in very, very, very small quantities, not in psychedelic concentrations. Um, we know that. So the question then becomes, well, is, is it ever produced in high enough concentrations in the brain such that you can have a transformative psychedelic, you know, immersive DMT breakthrough type experience? Um, we don't know. There's no evidence for it. There's no evidence that it's produced. Uh, well, there's no direct evidence that it's produced by the pineal gland at any time. There is, a, there is evidence against the idea that of a pineal source for DMT, which Dave Nichols wrote an excellent paper recently. But basically, in short, the pineal is a very small, very, very small organ, about the size of the end of my little finger. Um, and it's, it's designed or evolved to produce microgram quantities of drugs. Um, melatonin specifically it produces microgram quantities very 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 tiny amounts not milligrams you know so you're going from micrograms to milligrams a thousand fold so you're asking an organ that was designed to produce a few micrograms of something um, at nighttime melatonin to produce milligrams several milligrams so you're asking it to up 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 regulate its production by about a thousand fold at least. So that seems unlikely that the pineal is, can be a source of large amounts of DMT that would be required. Um, there are other sources, the lungs, for example, we know that the key enzymes produce DMT. DMT is not difficult to produce in the body. It's very simple. It's two steps from tryptophan. You go from tryptophan, you decarboxylate, you get tryptamine, and then you have to dimethylate. The, the, the dimethylation step is the trickiest step. Uh, uses an enzyme called uh, indole n methyltransferase and that's again it's found it's very very common certainly found in the brain might even be found in the pineal um, and it's also found in the lungs in high concentrations which might suggest that the lungs could be a source of dmt because the lungs are a much larger area they're much better source theoretically anyway um, of dmt than the pineal could ever be um, so is it possible that somehow doing some kind of unusual breath work could stimulate DMT production? It's possible. Um, but whether it's plausible is a different question. Whether these people really are entering a DMT state, uh, 
I mean, it's interesting. Uh, and I've heard this as, as well from people saying, oh, you don't need drugs. And there are often people who've never taken DMT. <laughs> They've had some kind of visionary state, which I don't deny they have, through meditation, uh, and they think it's the same. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, that's obviously it's in it. It's not really a, a defensible position to have. You have to, if you've taken DMT many times, um, and then you find that you can also get into this state. And I have had heard people talk about that, and I think it's very interesting that people describe being able to 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 reach that state through other means. Um, whether they're somehow reactivating certain patterns of, of neural activity or whether they're actually, you know, in other words, whether reaching the DMT state through meditation or breathing practices requires there to be DMT in the brain, or whether somehow uh, it's reactivating the same patterns of activity that generated DMT experience whilst you did take DMT, if that makes sense. I don't know. I think it certainly cannot be assumed that what that what people think is going on is actually going on. Um, there needs to be studies. You know, it's not a difficult thing to do. Uh, if, you know, if someone says that they enter a, the DMT space, they're releasing endogenous DMT when they do breathing work. Okay, let's hook you up. Let's take some blood samples while you're meditating. You know, let go into that state, and we'll take blood samples at five minute intervals, um, or you know, t every thirty seconds, whatever, and we'll we'll monitor the levels of DMT in your blood over time. Uh, or, or its metabolites, we can detect whether it's being produced. So it would be a relatively simple experiment to do. Um, but again, you know, no one's done it, but it's not, it's not a difficult in principle experiment to do at all. So we can test it. I've certainly had a lot of post uh, ayahuasca reactivations during, mm -hmm. during dream states as well. And um, usually sort of wanes after a couple of weeks, but, um, but during, one time during 5-MeO DMT experience, that that was probably a good two months sustained, uh, extremely lucid um, period of dreaming. And mm. whether that's some sort of physiological after effect, or whether it's maybe just this memory activation, like you know, as we were talking talking about earlier, with this sort of ancestral memory or um, post-biological uh, activation who knows but it's a, it's certainly a very fascinating uh period of time if you can really tap in and and i think just bring more awareness to to what's going on and i think that i think for me that's that's one of the big takeouts of 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 working with psychedelics is just that just that enhanced awareness of 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 being alive as you know as i referred to before it's just mm. just that realization that Fuck, being alive is such a psychedelic trip in itself, and and and, is, and, yeah. and and to to have to have access to that knowledge, you know, whether that's physical knowledge or 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 a spiritual knowledge or whatever you want to terms you want to refer to it as, but but just that just that state, it's almost like a dream state, you know, mm -hmm. and whether you want to call it an illusion or hallucination or 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 whatever, it doesn't fucking matter. It's just uh, mm -hmm. it's just an awesome. Um, awesome space to be in, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, clearly psychedelics demonstrate quite clearly uh, and, and undeniably that, that, that reality is, is really is. It's a fucking really strange trip. And, and whilst most people don't um, necessarily appreciate that, you know, once you've taken psychedelics and once you've been in the DMT space, it's, it's quite obvious that you know, reality really is stranger than we can suppose. Um, as Terence McKenna used to 
used to say all the time, <laughs> you know, and it really what is. is going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that really is true. And, and we, and, and, and it amazes me you know, every, every time I, I wake up, wake up, open my fucking eyes, you know, it's like, like fuck, you know, what, what is this weird, what is happening? You know, what, what is, what is going on? Why, why are we? Why do we find ourselves? And I think you, 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 we become, um, you become so familiar with and so used to, you take for granted your own kind of existence and, and you, you really do forget how, how odd it is for us to be hurtling around this, this star, um, you know, at, at, at X, X thousand miles an hour um, and, 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 and living out, you know, an existence, you know, being conscious beings, you know, why is that even a thing? existence itself you know alan watts all used to say you know that he, he could never get over the fact uh, that, that that reality that existence is really weird uh, the fact that we exist is a really odd thing you know why why does anything go to the trouble of existing um you know it's like why is there just nothing no, nothing 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 like deep profound absolute nothing no existence that would be the simplest possible state and yet that isn't what's happening. You know, we are here, you know, we exist. We are conscious beings experiencing this little world on this little rock tumbling around a star. Uh, and we're also able to access other bizarre, strange, hyperdimensional alien realities as well. It's, it's fascinating. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, that's enough for me, I think, you know, just, just to be able to experience and explore these states. I don't necessarily expect to ever get a, a true handle on, on what it is, but it's, it's fun to explore. It's fun to imagine. It's fun to think about. Uh, it's fun to navigate. It's, uh, you know, all of these kind of experiences, you know, altered states of consciousness and altered worlds and, and other alien realities and alien beings, all that kind of stuff. It's just fascinating. I, think. I could listen to your riff. Uh, <laughs> like, do you have, do you have a podcast, Andrew? I don't have a, po I think, other people, seem, <laughs> other people are, are very good at doing, I'm, I like being guests on podcasts, but you know, I think there's, there's, there's enough podcasts in the world to be honest. <laughs> it's like, everyone's got a fucking podcast now. So I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to fall into, I, I tend to do things, you know, like when everyone, when all of my friends were going to Thailand back in the two thousands, I said, I'm not going to fucking Thailand. You know, everyone goes to Thailand. I, did, I went there like 10 years ago later it's like everyone stopped going there so i'll i'll start a podcast yeah. when they're old hat um go to bali right now <laughs> yeah we're going to bali right <laughs> exactly but uh yeah so um yeah i, I yeah I, i'm too busy i'm 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 busy writing so yeah there we go plug you can buy my book alien information theory this awesome full color so yeah i'm 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 writing books i'm you have doing, a course right a, a new online a course, course. Yeah, so I'm doing that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so it's because, like neuroscience. Yeah. So, uh, so obviously this year I, I was scheduled to be speaking at a number of places, but that all fell through, all cancelled because of uh, the uh, can't say it on online, um, but because of that. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> it's true, right? They de demonetize you or something if you say the word, um, or they censor your video. But anyway. Um, yeah, so basically, I'm, I'm I'm stuck at home, and so I thought, what can I do? I can I can do podcast, this kind of interviews, but I thought what I really need to do is do a course because 
you know, whenever I give lectures, I often do a, an introduction of, you know, how, how psychedelics work in the brain, but I've normally got 10, 15 minutes to do that uh, before I have to get to my, the main shtick. Um, so I thought I need to, I really need to lay this out as a, as, as a course, as a series of, a long series of units of videos where I can actually go deep into basically everything I've learned about psychedelics in the 25 so years that I've been studying them uh, in a way that anyone can understand. So anyone who's really interested in what's actually happening in the brain when someone takes a psychedelic drug, you know, all the way from the molecular level, so what's happening when the drug binds to the receptor, all the way through to what's happening, global effects on brain activity and, and on the structure of your world. Yeah, that's what I needed to do. I realized that that's what I need to do. And so that's what I'm doing. So I'm kind of in the, I released the, the trailer. You can find that on my YouTube channel. If you search for Alien Insect or Andrew Gallimore DMTs or Andrew Gallimore Psychedelic Course, something like that, you'll find it. So the trailer's out there, which will give you a, a guide to the kind of the structure of the course. Uh, and then in, in the next few weeks, I'm, so I'm sort of recording the course now. So in the next few weeks, it should be online and anyone can take the course. Um, and you can also go to my website, uh, alieninsect.net or buildingalienworlds.com, same site. And there's a link to the, uh, the course page and you can actually sign up there for updates on the course and you'll get all the information uh, as, as the course is basically gifted to the world. And it's a free course as well. So it's not something you have to pay for. There will be a tip box, a virtual tip box, of course. Um, you Americans insisted I had one of those. Um, and, uh, but that's it, basically. No one's compelled to, to pay me anything. It's, it's going to be entirely free. And it will be, in my humble opinion, uh, it will be the most comprehensive and detailed course on psychedelic neurons ever to be offered anywhere in the world. Um, and certainly to be offered free online like this uh, it will be unprecedented. So hopefully... Uh, that will uh, be of, of interest to lots of people. Yeah, look forward to that. Me too. I, yeah, is, I look forward to it. <laughs> I think this is this this could be a, a part one, uh, Andrew. We haven't even talked about <laughs> consciousness yet, um, so maybe we could have you back on and we could uh, sure. we could riff on uh, on some other interesting topics, both uh, yeah. from the neurological point of view and from the from the uh, alien point of view as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So hopefully my, my, the, what, once this course is out in the next few weeks, then, you know, because you guys will obviously take the course. Um, and then, yeah, that might that might also raise questions as well that we can talk about. So, yes, I think part two is definitely in order at some point in the, in the not too distant future. I'll save my question about demons for part two. Do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. And Instagram, too, you have is Alien Insect, correct? Instagram, Alien Insect, Twitter, Alien Insect. Yeah, those are my main channel. My YouTube channel is also Alien Insect. Um, so please subscribe to all of those. It does, and follow me, whatever you do these days. Yeah, it does help me out. Helps me get my, get my message out there, so to speak. Um, and, and yeah, and do take my course as well. Thanks so much. And buy Andrew. my book. Buy my book. Yes, Alien book. information theory. Alien psychedelic information drug theory. technologies and the cosmic game. Yeah, full color. A beautiful eight bit, full color. Yeah. The the graphics are so cool in that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they took a long time to write, man. You know, it's like yeah, it's yeah, I did everything. I'm I I'm kind of a um 
I'm kind of a, a power freak. I don't like giving control to other people. So the idea that I'd write the text and then send it to somebody else to construct the the diagrams and the edit, no. I had to do it all myself, you know, um, which is which is why it's kind of a unique product in a way. Um, but yes, it does help me out when people buy my book as well and people read it and leave nice reviews on Amazon. It's also helpful. I think you're probably the only person in the world, Andrew, who, who in his spare time uh, has a scientific model to actually try and tap into uh, the other, ra other realms of, of alien cultures. You're probably a unique person in that respect. Well, maybe, maybe, yeah. It's just what I do. It's just my, just following my intuition and following what kind of, I mean, uh, interests me and gets me, what, what, what gets me up in the morning, really. And, and you know, sometimes it comes together as a coherent story, co coherent narrative, which took the form of the book uh, in a way. Nice. But yeah, maybe we can talk about that kind of stuff next year, next year, next time. Hopefully not next year, next time. Um, for sure, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Should be. Cool. Oh, we're definitely going to get this stuff. one, uh, get this one up soon, DJ. This has been awesome. Yeah. Oh, this was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen to this great. after. <laughs> okay. Great. <laughs> yep. Okay. Thank you very okay, much. Okay, Andrew. Take right. care. Have a okay, nice day and you. nice to meet you. Later, Doctor Andrew. Thank you. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye bye. bye, -bye.